What's up, guys? Thank you all for checking out this edition of the New Generation Sports Talk Podcast. I am your host, EJ Stewart, and we got a great show lined up for you guys today. Upcoming, the Final Four weekend is upon us. Duke, Carolina. You want to talk about a historic just blood rivalry? That is one of the Final Four matches. We got Villanova versus Kansas. I think for a lot of people, this is kind of what they want to see in these Final Four matches. You don't want to see necessarily so much of the Cinderella's that you don't feel like have a shot to win in that championship. Sometimes that's all cute when you get to the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight. But when you get to the Final Four, I think you want to see the four best teams, or at least the four teams playing the best at this point in the season. I think there's confidence that we'll be seeing some competitive basketball down in New Orleans at the Final Four. So I'm very excited to get our thoughts on what will happen in the Final Four, we're also talking about a pretty shocking announcement out of Tampa Bay with Bruce Arians, their head coach, announcing that he is retiring from coaching, moving into the front office. Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator, being promoted as a head coach and not as an interim head coach, but actually a full-time head coach with a new five-year deal to boot. A lot of different angles to kind of approach that story. I'm very curious to hear what comes guys say about that. I also got to talk about Julius Randle again. And it's crazy. I feel like every month, it's almost like a monthly segment at this point, something about Julius Randle, because that's kind of where it's at in terms of the Knicks situation and how bad it's been. But there were uh, rumors, I guess is the word that was used, um, that suggested that Julius Randle may have requested a trade this week, this week uh, after a Knicks win. He is denied those rumors, but I think it's, it's still worthy to kind of get into the minutia of what exactly the hell is going on in New York. And we'll wrap the show staying in New York, talking some baseball. We're just a week away from opening day, and the Yankees GM is thinking about something so far away from opening day. He's thinking about something from 2017. That, that That's how far away Brian Cashman is in terms of where his mind is at in the Yankees' quest to end their drought, their 13-year drought of not having a World Series. He's still stuck in 2017. I'll explain that towards the end of the show, but this should be a great conversation. Joining me is my co-host, starting with Kendall Stewart. Kendall, I think these are really, this is a really great slate of of, of, of topics, a very eclectic group grouping we have here. What are you looking forward to talking about the most today? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I look. I'm looking forward to talking about all of this stuff, but um, you know, I, I'm I'm actually very curious to hear your take on the uh, the Brian Cashman situation because uh, you alerted me to the story uh, not long before we got on <laughs> on the air, and I I had heard a little bit about it, but then you 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 uh, you expounded up upon it for me. So uh, my thoughts are I'm still collecting my thoughts on that topic, but uh, it's a very interesting one. So even if you're not even if you're not a baseball fan, I think it's also just a very interesting Definitely. sort of sports uh, the sports ideology, sports philosophy topic. So excited excited to talk about it. But um, you have, if you've ever been in a barbershop, if you've ever been at a school lunch table, and somebody talked about what your team did or didn't do, and you said, "Well, if this would have happened, things would be different." Well, then this Brian Cashman's topic is going to be very much. For you, because that's essentially what the GM of the New York Yankees is doing, going back to 2017 and trying to explain why the Yankees still have not been to a World Series. So, again, that'll be towards the end of the show. But I want to start the top of the show, of course, with the men's college basketball semifinals being set. 
We have two big-time matchups featuring marquee programs and even bitter rivals. First up, we'll have Kansas facing Villanova in a showdown between two Hall of Fame coaches and Bill Self and Jay Wright. And then the nightcap, you got North Carolina and Duke renewing their rivalry for the first time in the NCAA tournament, obviously the first time in the Final Four, as the Blue Devils look to avenge Coach K's final home defeat at the hands of the Tar Heels just a month ago at Cameron Indoor Stadium. Kendall, the first question I want to have for you for this topic, talking about the Final Four. All four teams come in playing solid basketball, but given what we've seen from these squads and these respective matches that we're, we're seeing this weekend, which team do you feel like should feel should feel like this is essentially their title to lose? Which team do you feel like should come into this semifinal feeling like they're the team to beat? Um, I think, honestly, I think, there are two teams on both sides that should feel really well, and that's that's Duke and that's Kansas. Oh, come on. You gave me a cop-out. I told you to give me one. Yeah, but it's, there's two very clear answers, and there's two that, that should feel terrible about their situation. <laughs> terrible? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, if you're UNC and you're, and you're uh, Villanova. Um, yeah. But on Duke and, and, Kentucky, and, and Kansas, uh, also, Kentucky should feel terrible because they, uh, they were not invited to the Blue Blood. Yeah, they, they, haven't, they, they haven't played in like two weeks. <laughs> they should really feel bad. Um, you know, they've, they, been, they, they've been home. <laughs> they they found themselves the last couple. Say, oh, St. Peter's is actually really, really good. <laughs> and then North, an eight team, North Carolina beats them by thirty. Yeah, uh, a North Carolina team that Kentucky beat by like thirty points. So, um, so they're now back to fire, trying to fire John Calipari or find ways to buy him out of his lifetime contract. But regardless, um, I think when it comes to Duke. You have to feel great about uh, the way they've played, first of all. I think they've sensed that – it's funny because not a lot of, you know, brackets and, and, you know, I think not a lot of pundits had Duke coming out of their region. Obviously, Gonzaga was number one overall seed in that region. So that played a big factor in that. But I think also what played a big factor was they did not end the season well. Um, you know, the three of their most high-profile games down the stretch – Really, four of the most high-profile games, they did not play well uh, against North Carolina. Uh, they lose in Coach K's last home game against Syracuse in the ACC tournament without Buddy Beheim. They almost dropped that one. Then they play Miami the next game. They win it, barely, uh, against a Miami team that we now know is, was, actually, was actually pretty good. Um, well, they, and, had, like, they had, like, senior citizens on their team, so you would hope that they would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Guys who played like eight years of college basketball, yeah. But um, and then obviously losing to Virginia Tech, uh, getting you know, uh, just demolished by Virginia Tech in the ACC championship game. So, you know that I think sat on a lot of people's minds when it came to um, you know, evaluating this team's upside in the in March and in the NCAA tournament. But they've they've played like the team that beat Gonzaga in Las Vegas mm-hmm. earlier in the season, um for most of, if not all, of this NCAA tournament. And I think the key for, key, the key to that has been Paolo Bancaro's emergence. Um, you know, he did not play well down the stretch in ACC play. Uh, his stock had dropped a lot when it came to NBA draft conversations. People were putting him outside of the top three when there, were t- there was a time where he was a lot to be in the top three um, and, and was a favorite to be the number one pick. You know, people were talking about he's, a, he's maybe maybe he's five, maybe, maybe he's four, maybe he's five. Um so he now has reemerged as a guy, as a true contender to be the number one pick in, in uh, June's NBA draft. Um, 
and, and Jeremy Roach is playing the point guard position has also established his team. Um, you know, as a, you know, he was a guy coming out of high school that was a five star McDonald's All American point guard mm-hmm. that had come off an ACL injury in his senior year um, of high school and really struggled his freshman season um, coming off that ACL injury and didn't really look like the Jeremy Roach that you know he was coming out of high school. Um, and then earlier in the season, you know, still kind of struggled for most of most of his year, but Coach K stuck with him. You know, him and Trevor Keels kind of, you know, they kind of uh, rotated in and out at the point guard spot. But the Jeremy Roach that we've seen of the last uh, three or four weeks has been the guy that people thought he was coming out of high school, the guy who could have been a one-and-done point guard, the guy who could have been, you know, the floor general for, for a national title Final Four type of team. So, um, yeah, I think Duke's got to feel really confident because they've played a lot of tough teams. You know, that's why North Carolina, to me, should not be as confident. Not to say that North Carolina had an easy road because they had to beat Baylor, but they had to beat a Baylor team that was shorthanded. Yeah. Um, you know, they beat UCLA, uh, which was a nice win. I thought UCLA was going to make it to the Final Four. Um, but I think UCLA fans will tell you that this team disappointed that they did not play up to the level that they played at last year, that for whatever reason, whoever you want to blame, Mick Cronin, you know, he's caught a lot of flack. But um, that UCLA win, it was what it was. And then you run into a St. Peter's team that, you know, credit where it's credit due, they gave a lot of teams trouble. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, but, I, think it, I think they had the greatest Cinderella run of all time, in my opinion. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. So, of course, massive shout-outs to Shaheen Holloway recently introduced as the new coach of Seton Hall and shout out to those kids because they, they went on a magical run. But at the end of the day, yeah. it is St. Peter's and right. they're North Carolina. So Right. And then that and that showed in that game. Clock strikes and, midnight at some point. Yeah. And, and I think the, the the nature of those runs tend to be that as you put up more film against these types of teams, it becomes harder to, to, to surprise people. Um, and so, like, you give Hubert Davis, you know, three, three full games against similar competition, and you you know you can kind of figure out what they do and how to how to beat them. But, um, but I feel like I, I think I think real quickly also I think there's a, a little element too to a team like North Carolina. I think was also particularly well, what's the word? I guess well prepared for that kind of game because if you think about it, they weren't a number one or two seed where they played lower seeds you know, go up to their lead up into the final, into the, to the elite eight. Now I know yeah. you're saying, you know, Baylor was, you know, a little injury injured and UCLA was underachieving, but those yeah. are, you know, that's a one seed, that's theory, a four tough. seed. Yeah. And they played a nine seed, which in theory should have been a, a pick kind of game in the first game against Marquette. So you play against, you know, three or four teams that people feel like have either just as much of talent as you or more talent than you. And then you go down to play at St. Peter's, not to say that St. Peter's, obviously we knew they were dangerous, but I think it kind of sets you up very well for that matchup because the problems that those teams present, St. Peter's isn't going to present. Now, it's different than Kentucky. You know, game one, starting in tournament, not playing for a week, this is the first team you're playing against. Or even a, a Purdue who maybe beats, you know, one, you know, beats a, a low seed in the first round and maybe another low seed in the second round. And then they get St. Peter's. Maybe they haven't been quite as battle-tested in those early games. Right. Yeah, and... um. So, so if you're Carolina, you feel like 
Like, I don't know what that last game was. Like, they played excellent. They played excellent in that game. Um, you know, they, 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 they played excellent in the UCLA game. But this is a different this is a different beast that they're playing, you know. And so, you know, you I'm sure they're coming in with natural confidence that they're an eight seed in the final four. So, like, <laughs> that inherently you're going to feel like we got a shot. I'm not saying that they should. I'm just saying from my perspective. If I was a North Carolina fan, or if I was just looking at it from the outside, um, I would be a little nervous about th- that part of it. And then, obviously, Villanova is playing great. It's playing, it's playing as well as anybody in the country. Not, they didn't shoot the ball great, obviously, against Houston, but playing without Justin Moore really puts them at a at a disadvantage. It's not a deep team. Uh, they've got a lot of players, but they got a lot of guys on the bench that may be younger that are not playing, either redshirting or playing very, very limited minutes and so those guys like Chris Archie Diacono is going to have to step up and and play you know a major role and and you know these guys these are guys that haven't played um major minutes for this team in the sensei tournament run so and you're playing a Kansas team that took a really uh, took a real punch from Miami and responded <laughs> with a heck of their own with a punch of their own uh in the in the in the second half of that game so um Look, Kansas, you know, is a one seed. They've played, for the most part, like a one seed in this tournament. And, you know, you're talking about what normally would be a tougher matchup. Uh, you're talking about a Villanova team that played. It's coming off its worst game of the tournament. It's a really tough Houston team. But is also playing without their second-best player in Justin Moore. So, um, yeah, I think those two, those are the two that should feel really confident. I'll tell you what, that Nova game against Houston, that was like mud wrestling. I mean, that was not... That was not pleasing to the eye yeah. at all. Um, it was sloppy. It was physical. It was bare knuckle. And Nova got out of there, but um, I don't know, necessarily know if I can say they played well in that game. They just, I mean, Houston just could not make a shot at all. It's um, funny because yeah. people kept saying, and look, I picked, I picked Houston to go to the Sweet 16. I'm upset I didn't pick them to go to the, to the Elite Eight because I thought they would be very dangerous. When a lot of people were kind of writing them off because they, you know, they everybody kept saying, "Oh, they lost to Memphis twice. They can't be that good." And when they went on their when they went on their run, then it then the conversation became, "Well, how did this team lose to Memphis twice? Like, what what?" <laughs> right, yeah. And then when you goes. watch the Villanova game, you're like, "Yeah, this is how they lost to Memphis twice." You know, like yeah. they when they play like that and another team plays well, they can get blown out. Yeah. <laughs> so just 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 to answer just to answer those questions. Yeah. Exactly. Um. I'll get to the Kansas part a bit in a second because I think we're, we're, we're we disagree a little bit on Kansas. To me, Duke Duke is the team that should feel like they are the team to be coming in here. They may not be the highest seed that right now is Kansas, but to me, it's very simple. Duke has the best player left in the field, and they have the most impactful defender left in the field. And to me, if you got those two things in a sport where you play five on five, it's not eleven on eleven like football or nine on nine like baseball. You, you have a chance to dominate your opponent. And that's what I think we've seen from Duke in these late-game situations. A lot of these games they've played, they've been very competitive. It's not like Duke has really blown out almost anybody. They, all these games have been uh, tough, kind of, you know, t- tough physical and, and close games. But at the end of the day, Mark Williams has been so physically imposing in the paint, and Powell has been just so unguardable 
as a as a as a shot creator and just a playmaker. That's I think honestly maybe if we kind of veer into our NBA draft lane just for a second, like that to me is a, maybe one of the more eye opening things I think we've seen from Paolo during this run is we've seen the shot creation for sure. He's he's been playing excellent in that regard. But in the last game where the shot wasn't going, he was doing a good job of getting to the line. As we've seen throughout this entire tournament, we've seen him make plays for others. And that's been that's been crucial. So when I look at how are you going to win this tournament, you're going to need a guy who can uh, make big shots, who's not afraid to take big shots, and who can beat one-on-one defense and create plays for others. Duke has the best guy at that. You're also going to need to be able to defend the rim and control the glass. And Duke, I think, has, in terms of both defending the rim and controlling the glass, they have the best guy to do that. I know Baycott is probably the best rebounder, period, but he does not the shot blocker and the, and, the, and the defensive presence that that that, that, Mark, that, that Williams is. So I, I think it's pretty clear Duke is a favorite from that regard. And the thing about Kansas is why I'm not as bullish on Kansas as you are, and I think that they will be in for a fight in that game despite Moore's injury, is I think they need to get better play out of their wings. I'm looking at Ochai Abaji, a guy who I highlighted ahead of this tournament as a guy who I think could take over, and I do think he has that kind of ability. But if there's things we've talked about Abaji in the past, it's been, you know, you know, sometimes does he kind of be, feel comfortable kind of sitting in the background? You know, does he not impose his will enough when he's oftentimes the most talented guy on the floor? And I've seen, you know, a guy who's been a bit passive. I thought the last game against Miami, clearly his best game, the whole team. I mean, they just annihilated Miami in the second half. It was just really a tale to tail two halves in that game but when you see Abaji's numbers you know a guy who's averaging 18 19 points shooting almost 50 percent from the field for the season and in the tournament he's averaging 12 points and 41 percent from the field he had one game where he had five points in this tournament that's not good enough that, that's not good enough he's playing when you get to this part of the tournament where you're playing against big time players like Gillespie big time players like uh Samuels uh, 12 points and 40 percent from the field is not going to get it done against a team like that and Christian Brown, I think he's played okay. He's played better. You know, 11 points, shooting about 44%. Uh, he also seemed to have a pretty good game again. Their whole team really played excellent in that second half. So I think even some of these numbers we're seeing here, I think are even a little inflated. I, I, I think that they need more from them. Because to me, those guys are the engine. I think that they've gotten a big lift out of Remy Martin, who's starting to look like the Remy Martin we expected when he got to Kansas, coming from Arizona State. This guy is a big-time scorer. And injuries and... A lack of cohesion with the offense seemed to kind of limit his effectiveness. But, I mean, now the guy looks like a dynamo. And I think he's really kind of stabilized uh, you, uh, KU at times where we would have expected Brown and Ochai Abaji to kind of take the reins further. But I don't think that they can get away with it being the Remy Martin show against Villanova. I think Villanova is too well coached despite not having more. I think they're going to need, uh, no pun intended, more from uh Brown and Abaji, so I'm not as bullish on Kansas as you are. I, going into that Elite Eight, I thought that they were they were the best team, but I, I'm just not seeing a full complete game from them. They didn't play a full complete game against Providence. You know, they had a first half where they couldn't score, a second half where they scored but couldn't defend. Miami, they had a first half where uh, they just couldn't do anything. They weren't guarding very well. Um, they, their offense was was anemic. And then, okay, second half, they go on this barrage. They have maybe the best half of any team in this tournament. But that kind of uneven play just kind of worries me a little bit. I've seen Duke play much more steady games, even if they haven't necessarily blown any teams out. 
I haven't seen Kansas play that steady it, game. The, the that Because Villanova will play steady. They might not have the high ceiling Kansas had in terms of how well they could play, but you can't. I don't think you play that kind of uneven game. I think you're going to get away with an easy win against Nova, despite more being down. The thing that concerns me about Kansas as well is when we look back at because that's it's, it's you got to take it for what it's worth in the Final Four. Not all paths to the Final Four are created equal, and Kansas, you know, second round they play a Creighton team that lost their arguably their best player in Ryan Kalkbrenner. Uh, in the game prior, and still gave him a really tough shot, obviously. Um, And then you play a Providence team that, you know, a lot of people doubted, you know, heading into the NCAA tournament, and um, they did obviously get to the Sweet 16, getting through South Dakota State, and then getting through Richmond. Um, And then, you know, they, then they, they, you know, Kansas took took care of them, but I expected Providence to, to, to put up much of a of a test, and then, then in the Elite Eight, you're playing a Miami team that again playing playing really well, but um, you know you, they're a ten seed. You know you didn't have to play an Auburn or a, a, you know I mean Wisconsin. I don't know what and I don't know if Miami was that much tougher than Wisconsin would have been that much tougher than Miami. But regardless, you didn't have to play a normal kind of two seed, three seed um, to get to the Final Four. So um, that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna be something that is you know, relevant, uh, you know, some of the other teams are a little bit more battle-tested, you know, Villanova um, having to play a Houston team that was as hot as anybody. Um, although, again, they did not play well. Uh, they were, they were battle-tested in that, in that game. So, I mean, um, yeah, it, 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 you know, I, again, I think from a talent perspective, without the injury, that game would be an absolute war. I, you know, I think, and it still may be, but, I, you know, I would be a lot more concerned for both parties involved. But um, with the Justin Moore injury, Vill- Villanova is definitely the, the the underdog. They're definitely the team, you know, that is going to have to come up with a game plan to to, to, to win this game. Yeah, no, no question. But you know, somebody's got to play out of their mind. I don't know if it's Colin yeah. Gillespie. I don't know if it's I feel like Jermaine Daniels. Sam- I, feel like, I feel like Samuels is the guy for me. Yeah, you know, um, Samuel. Samuel's an interesting player. I mean, I feel like Caleb he's Daniels such, is the guy. He's such, a phys- he's such a physical rock, man. And and yeah. And you, you talk about those matchups on the wings. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he's going to go up against guys who are smaller than him, whether it's Brown, whether it's Abaji. He he should be able to bully those guys. Now, when he goes to play the small ball four, that's going to be a different matchup. But then he's going to be able to use his quickness. I, I think Samuel's is, is a dangerous. Is going to be a dangerous player for Kansas. Yeah. Jalen Wilson may actually match up pretty well with That's him. That's actually, yeah, yeah. Wilson, Wilson is a decent athlete as well. Not as strong, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, not as strong, not as physical. Um, and, again, Caleb Daniels is the guy that you feel like has to play above what he normally gives Villanova. Um, he normally doesn't have to be anything more than, you know, catching and shoot weapon. Exactly. But without Justin Moore there, he still may have to do the same thing, but he just don't miss. You know, it's one of those situations because scoring, we saw how how um, difficult scoring and how rare scoring was for them in that last game uh, with with Justin Moore there for, for that entire matchup. Uh, without him, you know, they're going to need, you know, the guys you mentioned. Also, look out for Brian Antoine, who's a kid that was a five-star a couple of years ago from New Jersey really ballyhooed, who's dealt with a ton of injuries at his time at Villanova. 
Uh, he's he's another guy. I mentioned Archie Akno, but Brian Antoine's another guy that may be called upon to to do something. And again, talent wise, there should be no reason why he can't compete at this level against some of these guys. But it hasn't really clicked uh, yet at Villanova. Yeah, and and they guys, those guys haven't. He hasn't been relied upon to to be that kind of player. Now you see no. somebody you think would, because I don't think you know Jay Wright who's been playing essentially six guys is going to play a starting five for the whole game. Somebody's going to have some other game, even yeah. if it's just for foul trouble. But who exactly that is on the bench, uh, I think we're going to find out on Saturday. Yeah. Uh, la- one last thing real quick. Uh, one player I do want to also point out, I mentioned Remy Martin. I think that he's one of the biggest factor- X factors in this Final Four. Caleb Love, I think he's also the other big X factor. Because I think as we've seen, he has the capability to just go completely nuclear in some of these games, uh, he's had, you know, 20-point halves, uh, almost 30-point halves in just this tournament alone, but also during this season. He could be a very hot and cold. He's very much a feast of famine kind of player. You get the impression. I don't think that North Carolina is, like, so crazy uh, undermanned going up against Duke in this game. But you do get the impression that's going to take a Herculean effort from somebody for them to pull away with the win. If you're going to say, okay, who's that guy going to be? The last time I felt like these two teams played, Duke couldn't stay in front of Caleb Love. And they also couldn't, you know, get out to 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 uh to to uh Manic who was killing them from three too. Yeah. But uh but I, I think, you know, Love just I thought took their lunch. And and he was talking about it after the game, the way he was kinda of motioning to the crowd and stuff. He knew that they couldn't guard him. And he let them know about it. I expect Duke to be ready for that matchup, but this is also as a kid that's not gonna be afraid. Again, sometimes for better or for worse. He could be ice cold and he's gonna keep shooting. But he could turn hot at any moment. So if Carolina pulls up the upset, I think that he's going to be a player to look at as as why they would have gotten that done. I'm picking Duke to win it all. I think that Duke will beat Carolina. I think that I I think Nova's going to pull off this upset against Kansas. I really I wow. I, I do. I'm, I'm going to say a, a kind of a monumental upset without more. Uh, but I think that you know playing five guys against Duke is is just. You know, welcome to the slaughterhouse. I don't think I think that they they may get blown out in, in that championship game, especially with all the emotions of Coach K's final last dance. And look, it makes me sick that I'm talking about Coach K last dance championship. But this is where we're at. Yeah, I'm afraid, I, I just I call my, I call like I see it. And, and my my uh, my mean spirited for saying I I I really don't I really oh, don't want. I am rooting Duke so winning. hard for Duke not to win this, like really yeah. hard, and to the point where it was like, um. Shout out! I have a good friend of mine, a uh, former colleague from New York One, who who she she's a big Duke fan, and a lot of her fan her family are Duke fans. And you know, there was a lot of talk about, oh, well, we really want to see St. Peter's move on, and Carolina, you know, knocking St. Peter's out, especially within this you know tri-state area. Like, doesn't that make them kind of more of a villain going to the next game? And I'm like, hell no, Duke is the villain <laughs> moving yeah. forward. Uh. it's nothing necessarily personal per se, but there's just now I want a level of self-importance that they've, that they have thrusted upon this season for coach K all year that we've had to deal with. That's the only thing that college basketball fans outside of Duke fans. I I want you to win that going out with a championship as well. Because then we're never going to hear the end of it. I I want Duke to win that final four game against North Carolina. No, I want want Carolina to get them out of there. Cause only because it creates incredible theater for that Monday night. 
the, the theater, the, the Monday night, the national championship so, game. Always. Real quickly, I don't want to hang on too on this because we got to move on too long on this because you got to move on. But I, I'm going to disagree with that because I feel like, I still feel like the theater of Carolina and Duke in this like grudge match, they like, like this is like the ultimate grudge match. It was so weird hearing that last game with Coach K's last game. A lot of people who were, were kind of fatigued by the Coach K last dance season kind of were kind of fatigued by that game. They felt like the Carolina Duke rivalry had kind of lost some of its luster and they really no nobody really gave Carolina much of a shot in that game. And I saw a lot of people saying that I don't know if Carolina Duke's really the same as much and I don't really care about Coach K's last game. I thought Carolina sticking to Duke the way they did kind of brought extra life to the to the to the rivalry. Kind of gave it a shot in the arm. The fact that now they somehow Come now, you know, a month later, they get this grudge match on the biggest, literally the biggest stage in college basketball. I think that once they win that game, it almost feels like to me, like when the Red Sox beat the Yankees to go to the World Series in 04. Like to me, it's like, okay, now you're playing the Cardinals. And it's important because you want to win, you still got to win a championship in order to break the curse of the Bambino. But it almost feels like the curse would have been broken in that ALCS, if that makes sense. Like once Giant Damon went yard. The curse was up. The curse was over. Like right. that's kind of how I'd feel if Duke beats you no know, UNC in that national semifinal game, where it's not the championship. But yes, of course you got to try to win it. You got to try to take it home. It, that, it, almost, it almost to me feel like it, it almost feels like a formality. Maybe that's unfair. You're going into that Monday against a tougher team, whoever whoever wins. That's true. Against a tougher team, Coach K. You know it's Coach K's last game. Like it's not. It's not an if. Not an if they win. This is going to be Mike Chesky's final game, win or lose. And it's a national championship game. I mean, again, the theater. Now, you're right. I, there's more theater for the final four game. I, you can't match that because Duke, North Carolina. But if North Carolina wins, then who cares? I mean, if you're not like a you're not a college basketball fan, you're like, all right, North Carolina. I mean, it's Hubert Davis had a chance to win a championship in his first year, which is a real story. But, I mean, it's not it's not Coach K's last game. You know that kind of thing. So, just from a from a spectator standpoint, um, I I'm rooting for Duke. But yeah, I think I think Kansas will end up winning it. Um, I did. I mean, I, on the show, I picked them to win it. On my bracket, I picked Wisconsin. Should have stuck to the, to the Kansas pick. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, on the show, you know, or, you know, I did pick them to win it, and I, and I, you know, I'll I'll stick with that. I feel like they're they're not playing excellent. You're right, but sometimes your path is your path, and this is playing a Villanova team that's banged up. So I mean, it may not matter. And then you run into Duke or Carolina in the national championship. I think that I think this Kansas team is better. Um, that's my that's my feel on it. Um, real quick, do you have a uh, do you have a pick in the uh, women's bracket? Put me on the spot with that. Yeah, I know I'm putting you on the spot oh. here. I've got, I've, I've got Stanford. Going, re- Stanford repeating. I'm going with South Carolina. Uh, yeah, South Carolina. That's a that's a that's a that's a fair pick. Yeah, the size, uh, the 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 size, the talent. The, and they they've got the a talent. they've got a chip on their shoulder after not winning it last year. Yeah, I think I think that they got a chip on their shoulder not winning it last year. People saying and also Boston, not winning the SEC title. Yeah, people saying you know is Boston really national player of the year or is it Clark? I just felt like you know, and to be fair, I think you know there have been parts in the season where they haven't necessarily lived up to the talent that they have. 
Right. I kind of feel like in some ways they felt disrespected. They've kind of just been waiting for this moment. But to me, they yeah. they, they they are the deepest team. They are the biggest team. I think they impose their will in this final four. Thank you for bringing it up. You know, the women's final, the women's tournament's been it's a, it's a sensational. Uh, yes, uh, this, this, especially this when run. you get to this when you get to this part of the tournament. Yeah, I I like feel like football, yeah. where you're like you, where when you get to the college football playoff, you have four teams that like are all so good. Yeah. You like know? I was going to say like like even though I think we got fairly lucky in terms of we have, you know, four blue bloods. I saw someone complaining Actually, it was Bomani Jones. Shout out to Bomani that, oh, how are we calling Villanova Blue Blood? I, I think, to me, Blue Bloods are like, you know, new Ivy Leagues. Like, it may not be an Ivy League, but we know that, you know, some schools kind of yeah. I, I, operate I, as I, Ivy League. Like, Villanova is a new Blue Blood. Like, yeah, won, when like, people say this is like the ultimate. Seven years. Yeah, people, people, I've heard people say this is like the ultimate Blue Blood Final Four. And I'm like, I can't call it the ultimate. Not the ultimate. No, I wouldn't do that. I'm I wouldn't like, do that. Villanova. But in general, yeah, Villanova the Blue Blood. You know, yeah. like. The, the the blue blood application can be updated. Yes, they weren't, they weren't blue blood ten years ago, but yes, they are now. Yeah, I feel like you are always once you get blue blood status, you always keep it, but you can become a new a blue blood. Is how I always yeah. feel. Like Indiana yeah. is always gonna be blue blood, no matter how, how many times they lose twelve games in a season, it's still Indiana, <laughs> you know. But like, yeah. can new teams come in and say, "Well, look, we've had this very long sustained sustained level of success, therefore we should be considered blue blood." I think Villanova meets the mark. I, I'm not giving that to anybody. Like, I, yeah. like there's an argument say, well, should Florida have gotten that billing when they went back to back? I would say no, because it was it was yeah. two years and they didn't win before and they really weren't close. Since. It was a, it was a, it was a short run, you know, or, or like when UNLV went to the Final Four and and back to back years and now, won a championship one of those years. Test like, it obviously is is you know if and when Jay Wright leaves, right? You know, will will they? Can sustain that level of success, but as long and, as he's there for a considerable amount of time, like as long as he doesn't leave next year, like we assume Nova's going to be good again, like like elite again, still for the next five years. To me, that's a yeah. long period where they're a great program. Maybe they win another championship or two. Yeah, like at that point, I you kind of and they are the best. Pro, they're the best college basketball program of the last decade. Wow, spicy take, but I think you're right. You know, I mean, they're the only one that has multiple national titles. And, is... you know, Ooh. they. Oh, oh, they're the only I mean, one. Right, right. I'm sorry. I, I was like, I thought you were saying that they're, they, they're, there's only one other, but I got you now. Yeah. 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 They, they, they're, uh, you know, and then there's also, they're, you know, I mean, they haven't been to, I think they've won every time they've been to the Final Four. But, yeah, I mean, I would say, at least particularly in the last, like, six or seven, they're the best. Um, and so they're not the, again, if we're talking last 80 years, they're probably not in the top five or six, but, but if you're talking the last 10 years, they, they're probably number one. And I don't know who it was. One of these, I might've been Bill Self, one of these other coaches that Jay Wright's the best coach in college, in college basketball right now. So, yeah, I mean, the, like you said, the, 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 the names are certainly here for this final four, but when you look at the rosters and the teams, they're not necessarily, the four best teams in college basketball. I don't think any college basketball pundit would say these are the four best teams. I, I don't know if a college basketball pundit would say three of the four best teams are in this in this thing. So, um, you know, this, that's how we got here. Whereas with the women's tournament, I think 95% of pundits would say these are the four best teams in, in the women's college basketball. Even though NC State was the one seed, obviously we know Paige Beckers was hurt, UConn dropped, 
now she's back and she's playing at, at a high level. I think people understand UConn is one of the four best teams in college, women's college basketball. So yeah. it's, it, it's, it's again, it's, it's very similar to college football in that regard. Where you, when you have the four best teams and, and the talent is so concentrated to, to these teams, uh, particularly UConn, Stanford, and South Carolina, although shout out to Louisville as well. They you you will this is how you, you have a, a Star Wars essentially as you do like to say when it comes to the NBA <laughs> exactly uh, <laughs> let, let, let's just let's just gear to football so uh, the Buccaneers Bruce Arians announced his retirement from coaching this week the surprise move comes well after the head coaching carousel played itself out and Tom Brady had his retirement fake out this winter Arians called the opportunity to hand the job off to one of his assistants as the key reason. For his exit at this peculiar time. He also squashed rumors that a poor relationship with Tom Brady had anything to do with his departure. Meanwhile, team, the team announced Todd Bowles would be elevated from defensive coordinator to full-time head coach, agreeing on a five-year deal with the former New York Jets head coach. Bowles has done a terrific job running the Buccaneers defense and has served as defensive coordinator since 2019. But some were surprised that offensive coordinator and rising coaching star Byron Leftwich was not given the opportunity to be the head coach to replace Bruce Arians, considering he is he already has a, a reportedly very strong relationship with one Tom Brady. So I'll toss it to you, Kendall. Did the Buccaneers make the right decision choosing Bowles over Leftwich? Um, I'll be honest. I don't I don't know if I'm qualified to make that to make that determination. Um, they would know far better than than I would who was best for who is best for that position those guys um the only thing I can judge I, I mean I can judge the units which both units have been strong over the last yeah they've both been over um, the last two, two years or whatever but um but beyond that the only other thing I can judge is Todd Bowles time in New York which I thought was uh which I thought was obviously had his ups and downs but Given the hand that he was dealt, I thought he did a pretty good job. Um, you know, if somebody had the uh, the list of quarterbacks that you know that were there that under his, under Todd Bowles and in New York, and it, I mean it's Fitzpatrick, it's Matt Moore, uh, it, obviously it's Sam Darnold at the end. Um, I'm forgetting I'm forgetting the other names because they're so they were they were they were very uh, very forgettable, but. Um, Point being is he's never had a real starting quarterback, and he's never had. Did he um, had Josh, did he had Josh a, McCown one year too? Yeah, Josh McCown as well. Yeah. Um, and, and you know he's never had a he's never had Tom Brady. Uh, more importantly, and so right, yeah. um, so it, it, and it, and it still had a, a a measure of success with the Jets as well. The Jets having been Jets that was the best the, the best Jets season. You know, since they made the playoffs, was with Todd Bowles, um, and they've had now two head coaches since. Yeah, I, I you know, I, so I can't really, I don't, I, I don't think get going to Bowles is a bad move necessarily. Um, I think when you're talking about promoting from within, and you're talking about whether it's college football or the NFL, I, I do feel like there may be a philosophical thing where I think it may be easier to promote the defensive coordinator and have the offensive coordinator just keep running the offense because, you know, it, I think it, a lot of times, even though we see the, we've seen the, you know, the, 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 the sort of wave and movement uh, towards offensive coaches becoming head coaches, 
when you're talking about, you know, the interim thing, kind of like what we saw with the Raiders with Rich Basaccia, you know, they didn't make Greg Olson, who was their offensive coordinator, they didn't make him the interim head coach because that may have thrown off the, the offense. Um, and, you know, because now he's got to do other stuff and if he's still calling plays, you got to find another play caller and, you know, that that could disrupt things. Whereas if you leave Byron Leftwich to say you're just going to be the offensive coordinator um, and you're telling Todd Bowles, it may be a little easier to then maybe he does manage the defense or maybe you move that over. And that is that's a, still a question mark if you're going to have someone else calling the defense. Yeah, the but, word is that yeah, Bowles right now is going to call the plays, though. Larry Foote yeah, and, and, and someone else was uh they were promoted as co defensive coordinators, but Bulls are still calling the plays. Right. And so um and so there there is still that continuity. Uh and I feel like that's probably a little bit easier um to be a play caller on the defensive side and be the head coach. But you know, that that that's also subjective. But but yeah, I I think that, that that's so that's not surprising that they went in that direction from that regard, but um, just from the standpoint that Leftwich has, like you said, has a very strong relationship with Tom Brady. Um, I think the question that everybody has is, is, is the timing. Obviously, we know this, the story is that Arians had decided to retire before Brady announced he was coming back. He didn't tell Brady he was retiring until Brady had already announced he was coming back. And then... Uh, you know, like a, that day or the, or a day later, and then uh, you know, and in in Arian's mind, he just he he wanted to leave the team uh, that was in good shape for Todd Bowles to come in and win, rather than do it at the end of the year and Brady's gone, or do it you know before Brady retired and you know the team is, is it already looks like it's going to be in the dumps. So he he felt like this was a a good time to do it. Um, and so the question is, do we believe him? Is, is that so? That is a million dollar question because, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say the only thing about that that to me doesn't line up, and I'll let you uh, respond. But to me, if Arians, if Arians decided I'm I'm gonna, re- he says Brady. The, the the assumption is that Brady deciding to come back has nothing to do with Arians, although there was obviously. Right some scuttlebutt about there being friction between the two. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing that doesn't make sense to me is that he says that he's doing this in part because he wants to leave a good team to Todd Bowles. Mm-hmm. But he also says he, he decided to retire before Brady said he was coming back. Or maybe, I don't know. Like, So the way I understood it was, he was gonna retire after this after this season, this Brady less season. That, right. I, and now we they, they there was really never much of an elaboration because I guess it, it's a moot point. But like, did he really ever think that like there was a chance Brady wasn't gonna play? Like, I I kind of get the impression maybe he kind of knew deep down Brady was gonna come back, but he wanted to. If it meant that he wasn't, that he'll just ride it out the rest of the way and then let the chips fall where they may after the season. But I think that's part of why he he you know he definitely like was deading any talk about trading him. I think he really knew there was a chance that he was gonna come back and play for the Buccaneers. To me, number one, I felt like when you asked the question of is he telling the truth, the first thing I thought about when I heard this story was I can't trust anything Bruce Arians says because Bruce Arians lost credibility to for, with me. I think with a lot of people with how we saw him flip flop. 
and tell mistruths during the whole Antonio Brown situation. It was he's one he's he's one strike and he's out, and then he wasn't, and then he don't got no explanation for why. Then it was I didn't know the guy was hurt when I sent him off, but when we, we knew he he had some kind of knowledge of him being injured, uh, when he sent him off in that infamous game against the Jets. Bruce Arians, you know, I I think his mistruths I don't think are necessarily malicious per se. I think it's him kind of just playing the NFL game, which is you know it's it's always a game of half truths and and misdirection, and he's been in it pretty much his entire adult life. So he's kind of an expert at it, but maybe he's not that great because we keep catching him in these weird situations where things don't quite add up in terms of the stories he's telling. So this story I also thought was weird because the way he phrases it, it's like, okay, so because you thought Brady was retiring, you said, well, I'm not going to give this sorry team, which I don't think they would have been that sorry, but they wouldn't have had a quarterback. They were talking about Blaine Gabbert playing in games, which was egregious to me. But I'm going to leave this team with a sorry quarterback, and I'll coach them for the rest of this year because I don't want to give this to Bulls or to Leftwich or to anybody. Like, I want to uh, – I'll, I'll coach this team and then, you know, let the chips fall the way where they may in the offseason. But to me, I just feel like there's something misguided about the notion that he thinks he could have – his coaching staff would have survived a bad season under Blaine Gabbert. Like, who's to say that, like, they go 5-11 and 11 next year because Blaine – 5-12. It's gonna take me a long time to get used to the to the seventeen game schedule, but that they go five and twelve next year. They go six and eleven, and who's to say that the Buccaneers and, and the Glazer family decides, oh, we're gonna go, we're gonna go, kind of explore outside of this nucleus. You know, Tom Brady's gone. We're and, not and talking about keeping said, a championship it, nucleus anymore. So let's go and try to find the next Sean McVay, which is what we hear every single time there's a coaching uh, <laughs> coaching hire happening because we want to kind of start fresh. In his statement that. You know, he also, that's part of the reason why he didn't want to stay now, which again, part of me doesn't make total sense, but he said, I don't want to stay now because I'm like, what happens if we have a bad year and, you know, Brady, he's like, what happens if Brady gets hurt? We go 10 and 7. And then they're like, you know, let's do, like, let's conduct oh, a real. I mean, yeah, but that doesn't make sense as you said, because that's bold. That's the same. Bold is still yeah, living with that same worse. reality. Brady that if, if Brady gets hurt and they go 10 and 7, I mean, I don't know if Bulls on the hot seat, they gave him a five year deal, but I think people, you know, talk about what the hell happened. You know, yeah. So yeah, there's something about it that doesn't add up. I, I don't know. I don't know if they had this terrible relationship, but I just think that it's a, it's a, it's a very weird coincidence that Tom Brady retires. We hear this stuff about we don't know if he really was all that hot about Bruce Arians, and then there's oh maybe he'll come back before a different team, but then he decides to come back. But then a week later, two weeks later, you know the coach. That he allegedly maybe had some beef with now retires. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. Something don't something don't add up. I'm gonna play conspiracy theorist. Okay. I think you you just connected the dots perfectly. I don't believe that they're not connected. Um, now you know the story will always be the story, and we have no way of disproving. And we know Bruce Arians is going to be committed to sticking to a story because we've seen him do that with Antonio Brown and other instances with his team. Yeah, but. Like you said, the timeline is also the timeline. And right. when Tom Brady decided to unretire, I said it at the time. This doesn't make any sense. This idea that Tom Brady just got tired of being around his family. He got he got tired of retirement during the offseason. Doesn't make any sense. Because 
it would it was the off season anyway. Like yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever he would have been doing, uh, you know, if he was coming back for the season, was the same thing he'd be doing in February. Yeah, I'm like, after they, after they just got eliminated from the playoffs. Like it's not like oh, I'm <laughs> going back into the. He's sick of it already. I'm going back like, to going doing me, two days. Like he's yeah. technically taking a month off. Like that's what, of course, I got yeah, he's doing. He told me in August. Like he training camp started, and he's kind of, he's getting the itch, and he misses right. He has a Brett Favre situation. That's like, I get it. I'm like I'm like March or whatever May. You know, he yeah, it's February, already, yeah, it, was, it was February. Yeah, was February. When he retired. Already, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, he lives through uh, one month. Then, he's like, yeah, I can't do a month this. Later, <laughs> the first month of first week of March, first second first second week of March, you decide. Yeah, you know, I actually. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm not really liking this retirement thing. It's like, what else were you gonna be doing? So again, I said that at the time, and it didn't really make sense. But now, if you tell me, well, again, he was at the Manchester United game that weekend when he decided to come back. Met with the, I'm, I'm assuming, met with the Glazers who also own Manchester United. Yeah. And if you told me that there was a version of this where there was a conversation that was had, that was like, yeah, I, you know. I want to come back, but I don't really want B.A. as the head coach for whatever reason. I am not even going to speculate why or whatever beef they had. But regardless, I don't really want B.A. back or I can go to San Francisco or I can go to Miami or one of these other places. And then I think the Glazers and, and, and Jason Like and that whole brain trust had to have the, the hard talk of yeah. is it Brady or the coach? And... I think Arians already at a point, and I'm sure Like and those guys had a conversation in this, you know, conspiracy fantasy world. Had a conversation that that was, you know, yo, you're already you're already kind of planning on moving on. You want? Why don't you leave this to to one of your assistants, and we'll we'll keep this thing going. Yeah, and we'll hook you up with a nice little cushy front office job. You'll still yeah, get paid. still get it back. Yeah, I mean it's 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 it it's, it could be spun it could be spun as a win win right. for everybody, even if Bruce Arians necessarily didn't want to be. That pushed. sounds, that sounds just as plausible as the idea that he just, you know, again whatever spin you know of, I yeah you know I was I was always gonna retire, um, you know but you know Brady just decided on a whim that I want to retire and then oh he found out the next day oh and the coach isn't gonna be here, sign me up <laughs> like what I just can't imagine someone. As powerful and influential as Tom Brady, who want to be blindsided by the idea that he made this very emotional, difficult decision to unretire, and then learn the next day that his coach is not coming back. Like that just that, that yeah. again, like to me, I was I wasn't born yesterday. Yeah, like, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like like th- there's no way somebody of that influence is coming back with no clue that his coach is about to retire. <laughs> like come on, that doesn't make any sense. And I think anybody with common sense. Can see that. I I agree with you. I don't know what their issue is or what the issue was, but there was something that that made this timeline look as weird as it was. Real quickly, because I know I started this about the whole Bowles versus Leftwich situation. I have two takeaways on this. Number one, Bucks hiring Bowles over Leftwich, not surprising, and here's why. I think you made great points. Also, to be fair, um, about the defensive coordinator and switching, keeping the offense the same, and you know, being able to survive promoting defense. A defensive defense coordinator a little bit better than maybe moving up an offensive coordinator for the sake of continuity. But I I go in a different direction. I think when I look at, when I think of ownership and and, and the more I read these articles, the more I hear from these owners talk about their influence on, uh, you know, definitely, you know, front office people and and certainly even head coaches. 
they often look to what has given them success. And when I look at Todd Bowles' coaching background, and I look at Bruce Arians' coaching background, they're very similar. Because think about it. Bruce Arians had success as an interim coach with the Indianapolis Colts, much like Bowles had you know, a much shorter time, but success as an interim coach with the Miami Dolphins. Then they both get their first full-time gigs. Both guys win 10 games in their first year but miss the playoffs. Todd Bowles won 10 games with, uh, with, with, uh, with, with what's the name? With uh, the Jets. And, and, and Arians won 10 games with Arizona. And both guys were seen as kind of, you know, rising coaches, rising head coaches in the industry when, you know, circumstances, injuries, bad management led to both of their demises in their respective stops. Now, Arians had a lot more success in Arizona than Bulls did, but the Jets were more hapless than the Cardinals were. But nonetheless, it was kind of a similar story. Great first year, great start, a lot of promise for the fan base, and then all of a sudden things just didn't work out, and nobody thought that the guy was a complete buster, but we all knew that in both those situations, the teams had to move on. And Arians was seen as a strong candidate to get a second crack with a different roster, a talented roster, and the experience he had from those other stops, and that's what we're hearing about Todd Bowles, that Todd Bowles with that experience with the Jets, now that experience being in a D.C. on a championship caliber team, which Bruce Arians had prior to becoming a, uh, a head coach in this league, they're, they're, they may not be from the same side of the ball in terms of offensive defense, but th- their kind of track to this job is very similar. And, and don't Byron forget, Leftwich, it's Byron Leftwich, it's guy who's never been the head coach saying this is going to be his first job ever doing the head coaching thing. And that's yeah. a totally different track from what they what they had success with with Bruce Arians. So and, to me, I wasn't. I'm not surprised by this decision because when you see how similar Bulls and, and Arians' journey was to the top, it makes sense. And don't forget. Uh, this is also, you know, another miscellaneous sort of similarity, but both Arizona and the Jets, after moving on from those two coaches, then went on to hire coaches that were very, uh, they're very maligned. Uh, you know, Steve Wolf, obviously, one year in Arizona, and Adam Gase with Adam Gase. Um, right. And and, those, those, yeah, and those, those teams, yeah, those teams saw what, what happens when you hire a very, <laughs> you know, suspect, they, they think you suspect candidate. And it actually right. got worse. Um, and then, and then yeah, real quickly. Bowles, one, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, Bowles is also, you know, he's been with Arians. You know, he played for him at Temple. Um, he's been with him. You know, I believe he was with him in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken, or someplace else. But, um, you know, they, they've been, they've been, he's worked for him before, worked with him before. So, um, you know, this is a guy, and obviously Leftwich played with, played for Arians in Pittsburgh. But. Um, you know, those guys go way back. So that's his guy. So it's not it's not a surprise that he'd want to set him up. And Leftwich, again, hasn't been a head coach yet. He's younger than Bulls. He's gonna be a head coach very soon. So I think Dan and, and and my last thing on this is I think not getting this head coaching job is actually the best thing that could have happened to Byron Leftwich. And here's why. Because think about Byron Leftwich's profile as a coaching candidate. He's a young guy with an innovative offense that you would think would be great in a place where they're trying to establish a culture and kind of start something that can be long lasting a guy that could be your coach hopefully for 10 years 
that's what you, how you would look at Byron Leftwich. As good as the Patriots, excuse me, I always do that with the Patriots and the Buccaneers because it's not Brady. As good as the Buccaneers are, their championship window begins and ends with however long Tom Brady is there. And yeah. Tom Brady is 45, whatever the hell he is. He's old. He's old in football years, old in sports years, for sure. So, okay, let's say he does become the head coach in maybe one year or two years. Okay, the Buccaneers are really good, but they're a roster that's kind of built to win right now. They have players who kind of built to win right now that maybe kind of maybe at their peak, but kind of now beginning to come on the decline. And you're a young coach, and now you're all of a sudden after having all these high expectations of being a Super Bowl contender. Now you're in a rebuild, and will you get that same patience? Will you get that same uh, 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 respect in terms of trying to 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 build the team back up as you would if you do start at a team that's not necessarily right at the top and right at their peak in the beginning? I think the idea of him not getting this job and getting to just do what he does, which is coach hella fun offensive football with Tom Brady and the weapons that they have in their primes as they, we speak in terms of Mike Evans and some of those position players. Let, let do that for another year or two and then get a job with real job security, a job where the expectations aren't completely through the roof and you can really put your imprint on a team as opposed to, trying to just pick up where some other guy left off and you're trying to keep a team that may be on decline at a certain Super Bowl standard. So this, I honestly think, is not a big deal for Leftwich that he did not get this job. I think that it is a blessing in disguise. That's a great point. Um, <laughs> I'm still thinking about him not getting that Jacksonville job. but he, Trust uh, me, that was also a blessing in disguise. He didn't want, <laughs> that, that's like the other spectrum. Like That's too, that's too down bad. Like, right, you don't want right. that down bad. Like you right. want to, in, in theory, you want to be kind of like uh, the coach of the Chargers, you know? Um, right, Brandon Daly. Yeah, a state. You want to get a job like that, where it's right. like okay, they got young talent, they got young players. Right. Mike McDaniel they, they, the, in, the in, future in Miami. is bright. Yeah, Mike McDaniel's in Miami. The future is bright with some of the young guys that they got, and now he, this guy, can kind of come in and put his imprint on a team that just needed some direction. That's the kind of job Byron Leftwich should be waiting for. You don't want the job where the team that had the forty-five-year-old quarterback. That could probably compete for a Super Bowl, but maybe on decline. And you don't want the poverty franchise. There's somewhere in the middle there that would be perfect for him. I think that he'll be fine. Does this last thing I want to ask you? He'll be just fine where where he's at. Yes or no question. Does this impact your early offseason outlook on the Bucks, you know, NFC title, Super Bowl title chances? For me, it doesn't, but I don't know if that's (sighs) That's a good question. Because look, I'm a Jet fan. So I feel like yeah, you know Todd Bowles better than most Yes, people. and I feel like Jet fans feel a little more harshly to Bowles than maybe the larger NFL does. And maybe that's unfair because the Jets did not have a lot of talent. And and I gave Todd Bowles a ton of credit in that first year because that was a team that was kind of just a mishmash. That was really, really the suicide squad. You're talking about you know, Ryan Fitzpatrick and you know Brandon Marshall coming off an injury, catches for 1,500 yards. Like, that, that team was not supposed to win 10 games, and Bowles did a great job. But, you know, there were things that we saw in terms of the team's preparation, some of the way he managed games, that was very alarming. Now, it didn't mean that those, they would have made a difference in the Jets being a good team, but you saw things that were like, okay, even if this was a great team, is this a guy that can win a Super Bowl unless his team is, like, completely, completely stacked? Now this team is really stacked, so maybe he can win with this one. But I, I, I'm not as bullish on, like, oh, Bowles is definitely going to be – 
like just fine. They're right where they are with Arians. But I do think there's something to Tom Brady playing uh, football at peace. Because this is the first time in his career he doesn't have like a hard ass just like grinding him for 17 to 21 weeks in a year. Because he played with Belichick his entire career. No matter how many accolades and how many accomplishes he, he stacked up, Belichick was still coaching him like he was some like undrafted rookie in practice and in film sessions. And Bruce Arians early on was kind of treating Tom Brady the same way. Blasting him in the media when in those first four or five weeks when the Bucks weren't playing well in Brady's first year and coaching him hard. That was the word that we got. Brady's was supposed to he was supposed to leave all that stuff when he left Tampa when he left New England and he got to Tampa. He was kind of getting the same treatment. Bowles is not going to be that kind of guy. Bowles is, is tough. Bowles is um is is definitely like he's a disciplinary, but in a way in which he kind of just holds you accountable. But he's not going to be a hard ass, which is what Arians and Belichick are. And I get Bowles would be too busy focused on the defense. And I think Bowles is going to let Leftwich just handle the offense. So I think this is going to be interesting. I think this will be the first time you'll see truly stress-free Brady, maybe in his entire career, just in terms of, like, the in-house preparation that goes into week-to-week. I think that's something that will be fascinating to watch. We will also look look out to see if he can uh, if he can get his buddy Luke Cage uh, to replace Dominican too on the defensive line. Who 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 is Luke Cage to replace Dan Dominicansu? Mike Coulter. Oh. <laughs> Todd Bowles is the only <laughs> sports figure. Is <laughs> the only figure in American sports to cameo in the MCU. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So, <laughs> only Kendall could tie in Todd Bowles and get in a, a Luke Cage reference into this podcast. But this is why you guys stay for this. this you, 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 you come for the sports analysis, you stay for the fun. And this is what we try to bring you guys. Uh, let's let's shift to basketball once again. Let's go to the NBA. So the Julius Randle saga continues in New York. At the rumors began to surface earlier in the week that he had requested a trade from the Knicks. Now, WFAN, shout out. That is my job. That is my day job where I work. So shout out to them. Uh, WFAN's Craig Carton said this week he had heard unconfirmed rumors that after a Knicks win against Chicago this week in which Randall played poorly and the fans had chanted for his backup Obi Toppin, that Randall allegedly went up to Knicks brass after the game and said he wanted out of New York City. Randall was asked about these rumors on Wednesday and denied them, saying he remains committed to the Knicks and trying to win a championship in New York City. Randall's disastrous season has been compounded by enabling and gaslighting by head coach Tom Thibodeau, who has watched Randall lallygag and sulk his way through much of this sorry, pathetic season that we've seen, and still defending him through all that. After the Knicks youngsters rallied to beat the uh, the Heat last week in a very, very emotional and very impressive come-from-behind victory as the Heat were kind of spiraling a bit last week, despite their number one seed uh, ranking at this moment in time in Eastern Conference, Tibbs that went on a, a bizarre tirade lamenting fans and, I guess, media folk and maybe even folk within his own front office who were questioning his undying loyalty to Randall and these veterans who have been in the way of the Knicks' young players getting more minutes. Kendall, to me, when I look at Randall and Tibbs, these two guys are two sides of the same coin because both men have displayed toxic habits that have lamented their careers in the past and they've reared their ugly head in this season. Randall has showcased lack of leadership, inconsistent effort, poor judgment on the court. All things that we've talked about with Randall in the past. 
Thibodeau has been stubborn, inflexible, and uninspired in his efforts to try to turn the season around. All things we talked about Tibbs in the past. Those are traits that I don't want anywhere near the promising young players we have on the New York Knicks. Players like R.J. Barrett, who've been on a tear since the All-Star break. Barrett really starting to look like a potential All-Star caliber player, if not next year, maybe in the years coming, because he, he has been great for the Knicks recently. Manuel quickly has played great. Obi Toppin has played great in these in this time where Randall had missed some time with an injury. Quentin Grimes, Deuce McBride. To me, these are guys that I don't want anything to do. I don't want Tibbs and, and Randall to have anything to do with, with, with the development of these players moving forward. The flaws of Randall and Tibbs may have already sent Mitchell Robinson packing. Because Mitchell Robinson is a free agent, unrestricted, this offseason. And he's already had plenty of complaints about his uses in the offense and how he's not touching the ball. Both things that are directly responsible uh, by Tom Thibodeau and by Julius Randle. Because Thibodeau, of course, is the head coach. Randle is the guy with the ball in his hands most of the time. So to me, in my opinion, to keep either of them around would be delaying the inevitable because neither guy, as a team leader or as a coach, has proven they are equipped to consistently foster a positive basketball environment for other players to flourish, which is why both men, both, have to be gone after this season. Kendall, is there any way you see uh, a positive scenario for the Knicks where either of these guys are back at Madison Square Garden? Because I don't I don't I don't see that. I think that this is a situation where it was great what happened last year, but we're in this season. Both guys have failed miserably. The fans have turned completely against them. And it's just time to cut bait and move on. Is it ideal to fire a coach in the second year? No. Is it ideal to have to try to trade a guy who just gave a four-year, 114, 119, whatever the hell it was, million-dollar contract? No. But this is the the hand that they're dealt. And to continue to to move forward with either of these two men, where they're not fit to be around for the next wave of Knicks development would be a travesty in my eyes. Yeah, I mean... When it comes to Tom Thibodeau, it's hard to say because, I mean, obviously the the early word is that they're leaning towards bringing him back. Um, and I mean, we've sick. seen those. Yeah, we've seen things shift before. Um, you know, I think of an NFL, you know, <laughs> fired their, you know, fired their coach and the GM thought he was going to come back. And then all of a sudden they fired the GM, too, uh, very recently. So, you, you know, you, you can you can. You'll see situations where, uh, you know, management is is caught off guard, or front office personnel or coaching's coaches are, are caught off guard in terms of when they're fired. I mean, the manager, uh, Mike Schilt of the the St. Louis Cardinals, you know, who was fired last last off season, he, you know, he talked uh, this week that he was, you know, stunned that he when he was fired, and I remember it being like a little bit surprising, but. It was still like, yeah, look, Cardinals got bounced in the playoffs. Um, you know, <laughs> and it's it's sports, so guys guys can always get fired. But um, so I, I think Tib- I would say Tom Thibodeau would certainly be surprised if he was fired. Um, at least I would think. But yeah, I mean, in terms of what I would do, I would I would personally probably move on from Tom Thibodeau. Um, you know, I think that. Uh, He's done a solid job. He did what he needed to do. Um, but I think sometimes you have to ask yourself, can these 
is this going to get better with Tom Thibodeau? And can we reasonably find a better coach? And I think both answers. I think the answer to the first question is, I don't know how much better it's going to get, but we've already seen. And I think that there are better coaches out there. I don't know if it's a, a young, unproven guy like a Johnny Bryant, like a you know Will Hardy in Boston who's, who's, who's an up-and-comer, um, you know, or whoever else. I don't know if it's Don Staley. I don't know who that person is, but, you know, or it could be somebody who is, you know, part of their inner circle. You know, it could be a John Calipari type. It could be a, you know, a Jay Wright type or somebody that they that they would probably be more familiar with and more comfortable with. But regardless, um, I, I I think that they will probably move on. I think that they that they could move on. But again, the early word is that they won't. Um, when it comes to Julius Randle, I would be very surprised if Julius Randle is on the Knicks next year. Um, I think what Knicks fans have to come to grips with is that the the value that they that they get back for Julius Randle is going to be minimal. That is going to be gonna... that is the major question. I think that that is. Yeah. I, I think I think that everybody is kind of bracing for the worst that maybe Randle is back in terms of Knicks fans who don't want him back, but. I think there's optimism that this has gotten so bad that even this front office would be crazy not to see that it's just too toxic to keep this guy around any longer. But what Randall's value is on the open market feels like a major question mark. Because I feel like, you know, you're someone, you might not be a Nick fan, but you watch a lot of Nick games. I, of course, watch yes. almost every Nick game. When you watch this guy play, nobody would want him on your team. Like, you don't want him on your team. Like, nope. like if I told you, oh, can I get you want Julius Randle? You're not, you're not, you're not doing anything. Terrence was saying, oh, I'll give up anything of value for him. You might not even want him on your squad. Nope. But what we see with some of these players is, you know, you look at the the numbers. You see twenty points, ten rebounds, five assists. You know, that's the great Clyde Frazier said. You know, only you know Jokic and Giannis are putting up those kind of numbers. And you know, could you kind of finagle, you know, Julius's appearance? Say, hey, you know. Just needs to change the scenery. He could be the guy he was last season. And does, it only takes one team to take the flyer and say, "Okay, I'll give up something of value." It, it, those things are sometimes very unpredictable. You have players it that I can yeah. I couldn't imagine people giving up assets for, giving up major assets for people like Robert Covington, and then there's players that I would think that should you know, oh, this guy, okay, he's not that he, he may have been in a bad situation, but we know he has talent, and they can't get a print, uh, you know, a copy machine. I mean, the Celtics gave up a first-round pick in part to get Al Horford. The Thunder thought well, there's no way we were going to be able to trade Al Horford. Now, of course, right. they he, he seemed like an untradeable. He seemed like an untradeable piece. Yeah, and they were able to get a first-round pick in return. So, like you said, there anyone is tradable, particularly a guy who's not on a. He's on a. He, he just signed an extension, obviously, Randall, but he's not like he's super old. Like he's, he's you know, he's going to help a team if the team can make it fit and make it work. Um, I think they'll find a team that is willing to give up something. It's just you're not going to get back. You're not getting back any sort of all star. You're not getting back. So that's the thing. Is, is any any pipe dream that I have of Shea Gildas Alexander dressing in the blue and orange next year, but not of the Thunder, but of the New York Knicks on the Madison Square Garden floor? You're saying that that is indeed a pipe dream that Julius Randle. I mean, it has nothing to do with Julius Randle. <laughs> like if that happens, it ain't gonna be because of him. Yeah, I'm like, I mean. It, I, you know, I mean, Knicks have other assets, so they, I'm not saying they can't get that done. I, I've that, always that said my 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 position has been very very simple, in that the Knicks have a litany of young players that they are trying to develop. This is not a draft where I see 
great talent at the point guard, which is clearly their number one position of need. They may need a center if Mitchell Robinson leaves, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to go crazy over centers. This is not a position of pre- that's not a premium position in my opinion. So I'm just not tripping about that at the moment. My course of action has been I will attach Randall to this year's lottery pick and potentially one or two more picks in order to get a star guard. And is that is that unrealistic, do you feel, that the Knicks could get a guy like Shea Gillis-Alexander in, in that kind of scenario? Because that's how I see it. I think is, look, now, right now, the Knicks, I think, are 11 for 12. Like, yeah, you got to see where the lottery uh, plays out. 12th pick and Randall, you know, and then a future first. I don't, I don't know if that's going to move the needle for – for for, right. uh, for someone like and Sam it would depend on the team. I, I know you're you're very much in the OKC and the Shade thing. OKC is in a very unique position that not every team is in. But I have a backup team. Though. Games. The, the, what do you say? I have a backup team. Though. I know. I know. I have been on the Shade Gills. Just and I don't know how many times we've had this conversation on this air. I know me and you've had this conversation individually. But how right. Shade Gills Alexander would be my number one target if I was in the New York Knicks. But I have a backup team for Julius Randle, where I feel like I don't know if I really have to attach that many assets to make it, to get it done. Could the Knicks go to Portland and say, you got a young point guard in Anthony Simons that's going to require a lot of money. You keep saying you're building around Dame Lillard still. Doesn't make sense to anybody outside of Portland, but that's what you're saying. So you're going to need, if there's anything, they definitely need a four man. Can you go to them and say, hey, I'm giving you a guy that averaged 20 and 10 and 5 this year. And the year before, he was the second all-team, all-NBA guy. And we'll sign and trade and we'll take Anthony Simons off your hands because he's not a fit for what you're doing um, in the near future anyway because they're trying to win now. Is that possible? I feel like that trade makes sense for both teams. You may still have to give up that draft pick, I would assume. This, I got to give up this year's 12th pick for Anthony Simons? <laughs> I mean... I mean, I know, and I and I'm gonna be clear. I I don't mean to put like Anthony Simon's name down because I the fact that I'm yeah. talking about him, I actually think very highly of him. I yeah. think the kid's a dynamite scorer, and I think that he's just scratching the surface of what he can be. I'm just saying, are we is Randall and the Knicks that Randall, bad? Randall's where Randall trade, is so bad that I have to it has a first round pick to get even the, a guy the trade that, value that not even. Portland doesn't it doesn't even fit for Portland and what they're trying to do. Yeah, no, just because the trade value is not equal. Um... I mean, you know, on the open market, what can Simons get? Uh, I don't know, because a lot of teams have point guards. So, you know, um, I you know, I don't know uh where his head's gonna I feel be like at. whatever I feel like whatever Lonzo Ball got, he's gonna get. Right. Like whatever that number you know, their 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 careers aren't necessarily similar, but I think that whatever like that contract is we're to pull up now, I feel like that that's probably a yeah, four years, eighty-five million. That sounds about the money that I think Simons gets, and I'm giving right. it to him from the Knicks. Yeah, I, especially if I can get rid of Randall. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not I think even, the Randall thing. I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of pairing him up with a draft pick. But I honestly, I think there's also a scenario where they do that and they just use him to trade up. Like I don't know who they use Randall to trade up. Interesting. Like use Randall and the draft pick to move up X amount of slots to get. Interesting. That a player Jade, that Jaden want. Ivey or something like that. Yeah, Jaden Ivey. May, maybe not even that. Or, you know, maybe just, uh, you know, uh, and Mathurin. A Durin or yeah, uh, Jaden Mathurin. Yeah. You know, somebody maybe they need to get up. Because clearly there's, they, you know, amongst NBA circles, there's starting to be a first tier and a second tier in this draft. 
And right now, right now, the Knicks are in a spot where they may wind up in the third tier in terms of players. Yeah. And if you want to get into that, to get into the first tier, it's going to be kind of tough. But if you can get into the second tier, and all it takes is we got to unload Julius Randle, or maybe you have to swap Randle for like, I don't know, let's say you're trading with, um, I mean, I know Toronto's in the, in the um, what's it called, but like, you know, like some like a Thaddeus Young kind of player, or just something like that, where you swap that guy for Julius Randle, and then you're trading, you're swapping draft right. picks. Um, yeah, you take I a guy see, who's way worse than Randall and maybe yeah, exactly. a bad contract, a but you but you get to move contract. up, but you get to move up in, in the draft. Yeah, that that to me is something that may be an easier sell, and, and that would not have been something that they probably would have done last year, for example. Um, but that's where that's where we're at with his value. Uh, but I think as an individual piece, I don't want to say he's a negative asset, but I think that he's a guy that. Only selective teams will be willing to give up real, real value for. Yeah, and it, a lot of these teams that you're talking about, whether it be the lottery teams or the teams with good point guards, they don't really need a power forward. Like there's very yeah. few teams. At least a power forward in Randall's journey in his basketball life and where he is at, where he's you know 27 years old. The timeline, yeah. A one-time All Star who's coming into not no like crazy money. Like the money he's making is not insane. But it's more the length of the years that probably concern you, where it's like, I got four more years of this where, you know, you, you, you can't really. Once he goes to his next spot, it's going to be hard to move him again for another two years, you would think, unless you're doing what Nick's doing, which is maybe taking back a bad asset to get something good. So so that's where I think this gets tricky. Um, but I, I, I am of the party that I don't really care. I, I do care what they could possibly get for him. But if it's not that much, then that's just the breaks. Like I saw, you know, shout out to Stephen Bondi. I saw him say, you know, look, the idea, the real, the reality is if they trade Julius Randle, it's going to be on, on a, in a situation where it's a salary dump. And that's why you shouldn't do it. And no, I, I totally disagree with that. If it's a salary dump, then it's a salary dump. This guy is a cancer. He's a cancer on this team. He, he He's flipping laptops. He's not helping teammates up. His team wins the game, and he's throwing the ball in anger and walking off the court. He's not engaged with his teammates. He's not engaged with the coaching staff. He, he just, you cannot, I, I've said this a million times about him. It is the, it, he is full Vernon Davis playing for Mike Singletary. Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Get him out of New York City by any means necessary. And Tibbs needs to go along right with him. Because I don't trust, even if Randall's gone, that Tiz won't come in and say, all right, well, I guess that means Todd Gibbs, Todd Gibson, that means he gets to put be put right in the starting lineup. And I don't trust his front office to, I don't want to say bully Tibbs, but I don't trust him to stand up to say, yo, we're the one people running this show. These are the guys you're going to play. And if you don't want to do it, you're fired. Like, they they should have been done that. The fact that they haven't probably cost Knicks this season. Because yeah. if, if they had played some of these younger guys and started to develop some of these younger guys, they could have been in a position where maybe they're fighting for a playing spot. But instead, I'm watching Alec Burks in a late March game play 41 minutes at point guard. That, is, that was my reality last night. I, I just don't understand people yeah. who could look at that and say, well, let's see what he does next year. When this is the kind of stuff he's been doing his entire career. It'd be different if it was like, okay, he's doing some unorthodox stuff because there's some bad circumstances because of injuries and things like that. 
I, I watched him almost kill Lou Aldang because he was playing him too much. Why the guy had like what, he had some crazy illness. Well, I forgot what he was dealing with. I don't want to say it was like meningitis. It was something he like he needed like a spinal tap. Like I don't right. remember that. Like like maybe ten twelve years ago. Like yeah yeah. That this guy, this guy is on one. Yeah, yeah so I, I don't want anything to do with Tom Thibodeau. He needs to go on the same Uber, the same flight, whatever it is. Get him and Randall out of New York City as quick as possible. Let's wrap the show talking Yankees as they enter their 13th season since they last won a World Series title in 20, 2009. The team has faced a great deal of scrutiny for not being more aggressive in reshaping their roster heading into this uh, this, 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 this new season opening day just a week away but general manager brian cashman tells the athletic he believes the team doesn't get enough credit for its 2017 run to the alcs because in his words they were quote cheated by the eventual world series champion houston astros that season he says the astros use of their infamous sign stealing scheme was quote illegal and horrific and stopped the team from reaching the world series that season and had that not happened they would have been in the world series and this drought of them not making the World Series would not exist. And he said that he takes offense when people say the Yankees have not been to the Fall Classic since 2009 because he thinks that they're not taking into consideration what happened in that 2017 ALCS. Cashman also said that the Yankees have drafted well, have done a good job developing young talent, and have made right the right trades and good trades and, and different roster moves, and that they've built their team the right way in spite of all of this. Before I ask you if you think Brian Cashman has a point, I want to make my point on this and give you my takeaway. Because to me, even if Brian Cashman's hypothetical scenarios are true, who cares? (laughs) Like, really, who cares? And the fact that he is bringing up stuff from 2017 to talk about the perception of the Yankees not meeting expectations in 2022 to me speaks to a disturbing shift in the Yankees mentality at the top of the front office. And I think it goes all the way up to ownership because Brian Cashman to me, Kendall, he sounds like the 2002 Sacramento Kings who say that Tim Donahue is the reason why they didn't win a championship and become a dynasty. He sounds like the Utah jazz who said that Jordan pushed off on Byron Russell. If it wasn't for, for that, they would have they would have been champions. They maybe they won multiple championships. He sounds like the St. Louis Rams, who said the Patriots cheated in Super Bowl 36 because they were filming practice uh, ahead of that game. But Kendall, the last time I checked, the Yankees are supposed to be the 2000 Lakers. <laughs> the Yankees are supposed to be the 90s Bulls. The Yankees are supposed to be the Brady Belichick Pats. In fact, really, we look at those teams as the Yankees of their sports. And now they're the organization who cries wolf about their shortcomings. You know, the wrestler Charlotte Flair, Kendall, I think one of the things she always talks about is how, you know, I don't make opportunities. I am the opportunity. Like, like, like anybody who's going to make a name for themselves is going to have to be coming through me. And I don't even have to wait for something to happen to me or wait for, for a certain thing to knock my way. It's just going to happen for me because I'm Charlotte Flair. And that's how I always viewed the Yankees. 
be damned whatever the situation is. The Yankees are the opportunity. We don't got a third baseman. We'll just sign A-Rod and make him a third baseman, even though he's a shortstop and he's the best player in the game. Like, this is not a team that I've ever seen talk about excuses and talk about yesteryear to try to mitigate their current failures. But the further we get away from the influence of George Steinbrenner, the more we see this kind of like loser, short, small market mentality that we see. The I would have been Jordan if it wasn't for my knee or something like that. Like that's how they sound now. And it is, it is, it is surreal to me because like I said, I remember I was a kid in New York city as a Mets fan and it seemed like the Yankees could just do whatever they wanted in terms of whatever it took to put the best kind of product on the floor, to be on the field. That meant giving out $120 million to Jason Giambi in an offseason, so be it. That meant trading for Roger Clemens, so be it. Like I said, it meant trading for A-Rod right under the, no, no, under the thumb of the Boston Red Sox, so be it. And if you didn't win a championship the last season, it was a failure. And you better not do it again, or maybe you won't be, in a, you won't be employed. That's how the energy was at Yankee Stadium. And 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 to my knowledge, and to, from what I see, I don't feel like the fans have changed. I think the fans are I, I think they're they're livid at how the Yankees have operated this offseason. And as the season is about to start, you know, there's already concerns about this Yankee roster, it don't look like it stacks up to Boston. It doesn't look like it stacks up to Toronto. It doesn't look like it stacks up to Tampa. Or to the but, Dodgers. And it, forget, I'm talking about their division. I'm yeah. not even going into the National League. I'm not even going to across town on the Whitestone Bridge. Yeah. I'm not even going that far. I'm staying within their division. They don't look like they better than them other teams. And instead of saying, what can we do to make sure we're at their level or we're better than those guys, by hook or crook, by any means necessary, all I hear are excuses But while how actually this 13-year drought that you've been living with actually wasn't a 13-year drought. We just got cheated one of these years, you know, because Jordan pushed off of Byron Russell. And Tim Donahue gave us some bad calls in a game seven. And Bill Belichick had his had his Nokia flip phone out and was was uh, <laughs> and, 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 and filming you know you know uh, practice with a with, in, uh, in 380 380p. That's what they sound yeah. like. Think about those franchises: the Kings, the Utah Jazz, and I'm, I'm gonna say the St. Louis Ram. Not this recent LA Rams where they're really more about to change your life. But think about those franchises. Those are all losers. Those are losing franchises. Nobody looks at those franchises and thinks, well, they're a testament to, to success and a testament to you know, sustained excellence. The reason why them teams keep complaining about those years is because they ain't do nothing since. Yeah. That's not supposed that is not supposed to be the Yankees. I don't care. Again, if Cashman has a point, it doesn't matter. How is that still your mentality? How is we got cheated somehow an excuse. That's unacceptable. This is supposed to be in the Bronx. But things have changed up there, man. And I am not sure if a lot of the baseball world or even Yankee fans 
have come to grips with it yet. I feel like this is like a very soft launch to what could be years in the bronze that look very different than how they've looked in the last 20 years. When I hear, uh, when I hear Brian Cashman sound like the Maloof brothers, I was stunned <laughs> when I saw this. Because everything about the Yankees, they might not be the franchise that's the win, win, just win baby, as of course the, the Raiders have been. But that's kind of been their motto. It don't matter about anything else. It don't matter how you get it done. It don't matter what it takes. We're going to do whatever it takes to win. And if we don't win, it don't matter why we didn't win. It's a failure. I mean, this was, this was, this was sad to me. This was sad and this was surreal. And then we don't even get into the fact that, number one, the last time they were winning World Series, last time I checked, they had Roger Clemens pitching in World Series games. He got popped for PEDs. They had Andy Pettit pitching in World Series games. He got popped for PEDs. They signed A-Rod multiple times. Popped for PEDs. Gary Sheffield's been on that team. Robinson Cano has been on that team. How are you going to talk about we didn't win a championship because they cheated? When you got guys who won MVPs, won yep. World Series MVPs, have won deciding games for you, that have been proven to be steroid cheaters? Yep. I'm I'm sure the, 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 the New York Mets fans, I, I know the New York Mets fans, we've talked about it, so I know that. But I'm sure the San Diego Padres fans, the Atlanta Braves fans, I'm sure there are people that are like, wait a minute. What about them steroid cheaters you were trotting out there? Phillies fans? That was even after the steroid ever was over. You still had A-Rod out there. Yep. This was this was this was bad to me. And then he, and then the gaslighting about we we built a roster the right way, we developed talent. Who the hell have they developed besides Aaron Judge? <laughs> they haven't developed nobody. They just work. traded Gary Sanchez, who was batting like 150 last year. Didi, Didi, Roy, he was. They traded for him. He was. I mean, he was a young player when they traded for him. They traded for him. He wasn't even a guy they developed. Yeah, in that farm system, right? If you look at the Yankees draft history, it is nasty. Don't make me bring it up, Brian Cashman. <laughs> yeah, you talk about they developed guys. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. I thought this yeah. was one of the more some of the most like disconnected and misguided comments I could I've ever heard from Brian Cashman because I think he just misses the entire point of yeah, what's wrong me, with this organization. Yeah, to me, um, I tend to agree. Uh, I don't know how you can hear this. And now, well, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt um, and say that. While, yes, he is the GM of the Yankees, I know as a Celtics fan that there are expectations to win a championship every year and that you can look back at times and moments where you're like, if this balance goes a certain way and this and that, we'd have more championships than, we, than we've had over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And I understand that. And I also understand that from their perspective, from his perspective, you know, and we talk about it all the time. We you just mentioned the LA Rams, how they won a championship. Winning a championship in sports, at, at, at almost any at almost any level, takes a certain amount of luck. 
and you can do everything the right way and put all put all these pieces in place. And can you at times manufacture a title like the Rams did, like the Dodgers did, like um, like the Golden State Warriors did? Yes. But even when you do all the right things to manufacture a title, whether it be through salary cap or just great drafting and or just great personnel moves, whatever, things can still go wrong, as we've seen with the Rams in the past, as we've seen with the Dodgers in the past, as we've seen with the Golden State Warriors. So it's from from that regard, I will say, I think Brian Cashman, like, you know, you're not going to win the, the, the World Series every year. So I so I get it. Um, but what I don't get is saying that had they not, you know, using that as like, like clearly that's something that bothers him. And I get it, you know, that you want to win every year. So it's always going to bother you when you don't win the, when you, when you don't win the pennant or you don't win the world series, but saying that, you know, yeah, we would have won it had they not, we, this, this quote unquote pennant streak would have been broken had they not been cheating, first of all, the goal is to win, win, win the World Series, which I'm sure they thought, and I think a lot of people think that they would have won it anyway. But again, the game still has to be played, and so, um, so we, you know, we can't just assume. I mean, I, I, look, I'm a, as a Giants fan, you know, I'm sure a lot of Dodgers fans thought after they beat the Giants, oh, we're gonna win another World Series, and then right. they end up losing to the Braves. So you still got to play these games. The games still have to be played, and. You don't know how these things are going to play out. But ultimately, my thing is, you're pointing out one year out of a, out of a, you know, a 10, 15-year stretch. A 13-year stretch. Yeah, out of a 13-year stretch. What about every other year? Right. You know, like, you're you're expecting, give me the reasons every year by year why you didn't win it's the like, It's like, it's like, the whole, it's like, so now you're telling me, okay, so one World Series appearance in 13 years would have been. That would have been okay. Accept- acceptable? Yeah, like that's that that's what it sounds like, and <laughs> that no no we would have been cool with that, right? <laughs> it's like no, come on now. Like again, this is the Yankees that we're talking about, and <laughs> and again we're talking just, just a World Series appearance. We just want to be in the, the conversation. We're not talking about you're not you're not talking about titles. You're not talking about winning the World Series. So yeah, I I I I, I don't get it. Um, Sounds like a guy who feels like he has a lot of job security, um, but also a guy that knows that there's it's, it's New York, so there's a lot of pressure, and so he's trying to alleviate some of that pressure. But he's been there so long, and I just don't think that that's a comment that's made by somebody that is like, you know, that really that that really needs to win. You know, I think his thing is, like, oh, we would have won, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that and that's why that's why you no, know, that, that's why I. He, I don't think he doesn't say this is George Steinbrenner. No, if he it, 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 George Steinbrenner would have fired him the minute he saw this article. If he would have read this. Yep. Well, we would have won a title if the other team didn't cheat. What? What are you talking about? That was five years ago, G. What happened? <laughs> what happened to the years in, since then? We've had four World Series champions since then. Yeah. Four teams that made the AL pennant since then. You were back in the ALCS two years later playing against that same team after all this stuff happened. Well, not after yeah. the, the cheating was, was you know, revealed, but after yeah, yeah. that, whatever happened in 2017. Like, 
What happened then? Yeah. There's a level of complacency. There's a level of complacency in the Yankee organization. Do they want to win? Yes. Do I feel like they feel like they need to get off this schneid? Did they need to win this pennant and get that, what is it, 28th? You know, that, that illustrious 28th World Series championship? They're not yep. they're not acting with a team that, that, that usually operates with a level of desperation that I was just accustomed to seeing. Let's be honest. This was like desperate. This was desperate in a different way. This was a desperate and please be okay with the product that we're putting on the on the on the on the field and understand that the product that you've been complaining about is actually been a lot better than you think. That just is a foreign language to me. Let's be honest. Coming out of Yankee land, the the new the new Yankees are the are the LA Dodgers. Yeah, one hundred percent. In terms of the way they they operate, the way they move. I mean, Dave Roberts earlier this week saying we're going to win a World Series. That's that's the expectation. Like putting a lot of pressure on himself. They just gave him extension, so I'm like, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's like, I can say <laughs> he made that. that he made that. He made that statement once the ink dried on that new extension. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but like, regardless, you know, Andrew Friedman and the the job that he's done, putting you know making that the expectation. They've only won one, you know, in 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 recent years, but that's still they still make moves every year to try and keep themselves as the favorites going in every year. And they pretty much operate as the favorite or one of the favorites every single year. And the Yankees haven't operated as much like that. They've had a lot of talent, obviously, um, going out and getting John Carl Stanton, going out and getting Garrett Cole. Like they've made moves in their, in their own right that have kept them um, at the top. But that's my point. Like, you want to, like, if, if, if you're going to be in that conversation – you don't just talk about one. the teams that talk about one year are like the Cincinnati Bengals who say, look, or like you said, the, the Sacramento Kings, where you're like, right. that, was, that was our year, man. <laughs> That's that what I'm trying to say. You know, like Those that are loser was our organizations. And it didn't happen. Like the Bengals are going to look for 20 years. Bengals fans are going to say, yeah, if, if Zach Taylor was giving Joe Mixon the ball, or if that ref didn't throw that stupid flag on Logan yeah. Wilson. Or if they would have called the false start on, on Whitworth. Yeah, if they would have called the false start. We would have won that game. Yeah, these things that 10 years from now, nobody's going to think about or remember at all. Yeah. And, again, as a Celtics fan, you know, I, I don't think about, you know, yeah, you know, if LeBron would have missed that shot, you know, if LeBron didn't have 45 against us, you know, we would have we beat Miami. Like, I don't – who cares, man? You know, that you, we had multiple chances to win championships. We fell apart each time, but and I, again, I get it for those franchises where it's not a normal, it's not a normal thing, you know. But that shouldn't be the Yankees. The Yankees shouldn't be, you know, putting everything on all their eggs into one year, where ah, uh, you know, every everything was set up, the timeline, everything aligned, all you know, it was a, it was a harmonic convergence in 2017 that got wiped away because of cheating. Again. And what was if, weird about that, that year, they weren't, like, some, like, they, they that team was all right. It wasn't even like they right. were, like, some, like, oh, they, they, we were at, we had a, like, when I talk about the Mets, when I talk about, like, again, again, I mean, I'm keeping it 100. The Mets are not like the Yankees. They are like the Kings in those teams. When I talk about, oh, the team, when we had, you know, Jose Reyes and Bellatron and Wright and Delgado, and, and it looked like they were on a, they were on, 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 a, on a, on a, just a, a beeline for a World Series ring, and then, you know, El Duque tears his hamstring before game one. Pedro goes down, you know, towards the end of the season. 
So now they're they're down all these starters. And I say, look, if, if, the, if the Mets would have had Pedro and El Duque, I think they wouldn't want would have won a World Series. But that's something that Mets people do. <laughs> that's not something that you expect from the Yankees. You know what I'm saying? That like that yep. like it, this is a team that was trotting out that terrible, you know, Jacoby Ellsbury contract during that time. Is that a guy that you developed well and, or made smart moves to get? You know, they they had they had the corpse of Matt Holiday out there. Chase Headley was playing third base. This was not a team where it's like, oh, they had a squad and like things just didn't break their way. They were a team that was like, oh, they really like maximized their their what we thought was a fairly low ceiling. But you know, hey, Aaron Judge hit fifty home runs, so nobody expected that. It was a great story, and 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 Gary Sanchez at twenty four years old puts up Mike Piazza numbers. Again, things you couldn't really expect, but it was a great story. But then he's acting like, oh, like. This this was in the bag until you know it got robbed from us, and it's like, come on, man, that's complete revisionist history. They didn't try to say, oh, we we've been developing guys and <laughs> and drafting well. Again, yeah. who who is he talking? I have no idea who he's talking about. Aaron Judge is the only guy that you can say they drafted and developed well. Every other guy is either traded or turned into a bust, or both in some instances. But yep. to me, I, I, to me, it just screamed like I felt like he's been hearing the whispers of people saying, "Hey, like you have not done a good job of drafting and developing talent, <laughs> and y'all ain't signed nobody." So now we kind of we we're kind of screwed on both fronts. We ain't getting these guys coming up in the majors, coming up from the minors that are really lighting the world on fire and becoming you know cornerstone type of guys, and we're not going out there just getting the Carlos Correa's and the Trevor stories when they become available. So what the hell are we actually doing? And it's a good question. And I feel like Cashman was a little sensitive to that. He was trying to play defense here with something that seemed just egregious to me. So I had to make sure we talked about it on the show. Yeah. But I think that's a good place to wrap it this week. So thank you guys for checking out this edition of New Generation Sports Talk. Of course, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you check out all of our episodes on the New Generation Podcast Network. You can find that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also, be sure to check us out on YouTube, New Generation Media. We'll have plenty of content, not just Marvel content, but some draft content and some uh, college and high school basketball content coming your way within these upcoming weeks. So make sure you, you, you keep it locked into our YouTube channel as well. You can subscribe to the channel, New Generation Media. Make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, New Generation Pod, Instagram, New Generation Podcast. As well, you can find us on Facebook, uh, searching New Generation Media. And follow us individually on social media. You can find Kendall on Twitter, NewGenKen. You can find me on Twitter, EJ underscore Stewart. And on Instagram, ActionEJ. Thank you guys so much again for checking us out. For Kendall, I'm EJ. Take it easy, guys. Peace. <laughs>